If you weren't with us, we finished up Jeremiah a few weeks ago, and Jeremiah was such a long book. We did Jeremiah and Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah's 52 chapters. What we've been doing here the last couple weeks is just doing some little, I don't want to call them topical studies, it's more of passage studies. I've shared with you the last few weeks that sometimes I'll be reading something in devotions or come across something, and I think, boy, what a neat little study that would be. Like tonight, verses 14 through 21 of 2 Kings 13, it's a great little story. Well, to get to it, by the time you would do 2 Kings, you'd probably stop and say, well, if you're going to do 2 Kings, you should probably do 1 Kings. So by the time you do 1 Kings, you'd probably stop and say, well, to really get the full context, you need to do 1 and 2 Samuel. So by the time I would start 1 and 2 Samuel, do 1 Kings and get to 2 Kings 13, it would be literally 2017 or something like that. So we're stopping these last few weeks and just doing some of these little studies and little nuggets we did one on King Asa a couple weeks ago. We did something on Ecclesiastes last week. And we're going to do a little study here on 2 Kings 13. And then we're going to start a book here soon and go back to what we normally do. But I think it's fun to kind of stop and do this. This is just a short little story, verses 14 through 21. This is when Elisha the prophet dies. Elisha, argumentably, is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He took the mantle, literally, from Elijah. Now, a lot of people look at Elijah as being one of the great prophets. Elisha actually did more in his ministry than Elijah did. And so Elisha, the prophet, is getting ready to die. And so we see his final ministry and what he does. So look at this, verse 14 of 2 Kings 13. It says, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, normally we do some background on this, but to be quite honest with you, the background of this really just doesn't matter as much of who Joash is and Elisha's ministry because this is just a small nugget in their lives. Just know this, Elisha was one of the greatest prophets that lived in the Old Testament, ministered really primarily to the northern tribes of Israel, and Joash is one of the kings of the northern tribes. So, Joash comes because Elisha's dying. Now, how's this for your first point for the evening? You're going to die. You will die. That's something, for some reason, that really bothers people. To talk about that. That this idea that you will die. And I've never understood that. There becomes a part of your life where you have to accept the fact that the clock is ticking down. We've been talking a lot about heaven with devotions with the boys. And Layden last night came up and he wants to know about heaven. And he calls it Jesus' home. And I like that. So Layden wants to know about when do we get to go to Jesus' home. So I said, well, I don't know when we're going to go. Then Layden goes, when I go to Jesus' home, will you come with me? I said, I sure hope we can go all at the same time, Layden, is that we'll all go to Jesus' home together. So then Kenan says, when I go to Jesus' home, will you do a funeral for me? And at that time, Dawn says, we're done talking about this. We're not going to talk about it. I said, well, let's talk about it. You know, and Dawn's like, we're not going to talk about it. Some people just don't want to talk about it. So here's your great point. You've had a long, rough day. It's been difficult to even get here tonight. You're struggling. It's been a rough week. Your first point tonight is you're going to die. But there is a refreshing acceptance that there is an end. Look at this. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. You are a saint. Jesus loves you. God loves you. But eventually sin is going to defeat this physical body. But I have been born again in Christ, so I get to go to heaven. I will physically die. And I have to accept that point. Look here at 2 Timothy 4. Can you flip there real quick? This is Paul's swan song. Last book of the Bible that Paul wrote. He's writing this knowing that his death is imminent. 
And he's got these last couple verses that he does to describe what it's like for him with his death coming forward. Unless you accept the fact that there's an end to your life, I don't know if you'll ever fully realize what it means to live for Christ. 2 Timothy, look at chapter 4 here. Verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Look at Paul's final words here on his life. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. Look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do you think that you can say that? If you don't think that you can say that, then you need to stop and say, why am I not living knowing that I'm going to die? Why am I not looking at these opportunities in my life to say this is a fight? It's a fight. You know, Jonathan taught a couple Sundays ago, and I thought he had a great point. As Christians, we don't realize you're in a fight. Every day, you're going to be in a battle. Every day, the enemy is going to try to pull you down, your marriage down, your witness down, your life down. It is a fight. And unless you realize you're in a fight, you're going to get beaten up. So it's a fight, and you've got to finish the race. got to finish the race. I like to run. I like to go out and run. And I tell you, when I was back in high school and I was running cross country, I can remember the coaches telling you, finish. Just keep going. Finish. How many of us as Christians quit fighting... And then we get beat up, we quit running, and the finish line is right there, and we just stop. And how many of us in verse 7, we don't keep the faith? We just give up. When you accept the fact that you're going to die, when you accept the fact that there is an end to your existence, this spurs you on. Elisha realized the end was coming. This spurred him on to have a ministry opportunity here with Joash. So that's point number one, you're going to die. What did Joash do? What did Elisha do? Let's go to verse 15. Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. But he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. I think this is important in verse 16. You need to get involved. You need to go out there and you need to make contact with people. I think too often as Christians we do something what I call the fort mentality. Jesus is returning. I want to keep my family safe. I'm going to keep my kids safe. So I'm going to live my life in the spiritual fort. I'm going to make the walls as big as I can. And I'm going to have no contact with the non-believing world. My kids will never hear anything wrong. My kids will never see anything wrong. I will not be influenced or tempted by anything wrong. And I'm going to hide in this spiritual fort with the walls as high as they can and just wait for the return of Jesus Christ. That sounds great, but the problem is I'm supposed to be like Elisha. I'm supposed to be out there, my hand on someone's hand. Ministry. How many of you get frustrated by the non-believers you work with? That's ministry. Your hand on their hand. How many of you are frustrated with the way your relationships are with family and close friends? That's your hand on their hand. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get out there and make contact with people. Make contact with people. There's a really strange passage, speaking of Elisha, where it, it, there's this one little boy that dies, if you remember correctly. And as he dies, his body is laying there, and it says the Bible says that Elisha literally gets up there and lays on top of him. Do you remember that story? What a strange story. Here's this little boy that's died, and Elisha gets on top of him and lays on top of him. It's a picture of being willing to make contact. See, when I see somebody who's dead spiritually, non-believer, part of me wants to stay completely away from them. 
I don't want to be influenced by that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see that. But really, ministry is saying, I'm going to go out there and let my hand touch their hand. I'm going to go out there. I heard somebody say this one time. Christianity means you get your hands dirty. You get out there and you make a difference in people's lives. I put this verse down, Ephesians 5.16. This is the New Living Translation. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. See, if you really look at your life, if you really look at your life as I get up, I go to work, I earn money, I pay the bills, I repeat. I get up, I go to work, I earn money, I pay the bills. That will be a depressing, discouraging existence. It really will. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Every day is an opportunity to stop and say, Lord, I get to live for you today because I know I'm going to die. First point, I'm going to die, so therefore I want to now get involved. I want to use the time that I have and do something. Make an eternal difference in everything I do and say. You know what the problem is with that? It goes to point number three. It's hard to listen See, look at this. Look at this story. Verse 17. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrows of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry at them and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I've read this passage so many times, I always used to get so frustrated with Elisha. It's like, why are you getting mad at Joash? You didn't tell him that the ground represented Syria. And you didn't tell him that by him hitting the ground with the arrows, it represented all this other type of stuff. How is he supposed to figure this out? That's really unfair. But if you look at the passage again, all the context clues are there. The arrow, verse 17, represents the Lord's deliverance. He's shooting it towards the east, which represents, that's where Syria was. He says in verse 17, you must strike the Syrians. So that shows God striking it. So the arrow, verse 18, is God's deliverance. He's attacking Syria. It's already been determined. And you're supposed to strike it, verse 18. So the understanding is Joash should have put all this together. And he should have taken that arrow and he should have pounded that ground as hard as he could, as many times as he could. Now you may say, okay, well, how's he supposed to figure that out? It comes to point number three. We're supposed to listen. I don't mean this at all disrespectfully to anybody out here because I struggle with the same thing. How am I supposed to know what God wants me to do? Listen to Him and He'll tell you. It's that simple. God is not trying to make His message difficult to hear. He's not. The problem is we allow so many things in our life that make it difficult for the Lord to speak. Go, if you will, to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. Let's talk for a second here about now Elijah. 1 Kings 19, Elijah is trying to speak, excuse me, God is trying to speak to Elijah. How does he do it? Well, we get this great little verse here in 1 Kings 19. What happens here, right around verse 9 of 1 Kings 19, Elijah is having a wonderful, wonderful pity party for himself. In fact, in the beginning of 1 Kings 19, Elijah wants to die. He actually prays, Lord, take my life. It's just not worth living anymore. So what happens is for 40 nights, 40 days, Elijah's in the wilderness, and he's having this little pity party for himself. Verse 9, it says, And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God says, Elijah, what are you doing? Verse 10, 
So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel. I have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Verse 10, this is a little whiny moment. Everything's wrong. I'm the only guy left. Everybody disagrees with God. No one's listening to me. Any of you had those little whiny moments? How's it going? It's awful. My job's awful. My life's awful. My health's awful. Everything's awful. My life is just complete awful. Verse 11, then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. That's how God speaks, is a still, small voice. See, so often, we want the Lord to scream the answer. He doesn't do that. He does not do that. If the Lord speaks to you, it's in a still, small voice. Here's the thing. If you're sitting there saying, Lord, lead me, reveal to me what you want me to do, and you got the radio on, you got the TV on, you got the internet going, you got everything going, God is not going to yell louder than those things. He's not. So often I notice in my prayer life, I'll be sitting there doing life, Lord, speak to me. And it feels like the Lord says, well, shut everything down and I'll talk to you then. It's the still, small voice. We expect God to yell louder than everything that's going on in our life. Lord, be louder than my friends. Lord, be louder than my entertainment. Lord, be louder than my temptations and sins. God says, get away from those things and let me speak to you then. And that's still, small voice. See, that, that's where we're at. If you want the Lord to reveal to you His plan, we have to be willing to listen. Part of being willing to listen is to do exactly what Elijah did. Get out of your pity party cave. Get on top of the mountain. And say, Lord, speak. Speak. I'm listening. And yeah, I wish the Lord would yell and scream like an earthquake and like the wind. I wish He'd ride it across the sky in fire. He doesn't. For me, the Lord usually speaks through His Word. It's devotions in the morning. God speaks through His Word. God speaks through the body. God speaks through worship. God speaks through prayer. There's many different ways that He can speak. He just won't scream it at you. And we have to train ourselves to listen. So let's put this in perspective. You are going to die. But that's a good thing. Because that spurs you on to live now. As you now live, you say, I want to get involved. I want to do something. I want to get out there and touch the non-believer for Christ. And how do I do that? I have to learn to listen to what he has to say. I have to learn to listen. Now, before we move on with the rest of this, we'll stop for a second here. Make any quick questions, comments about anything we've covered here thus far before we go on with anything else. Okay. So, what happens now when you get involved? Look at point number four. You're going to get angry. Verse 19, And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times, and you have struck Syria till you have destroyed it, but now you will strike Syria only three times. Have you ever gotten involved in ministry at church and instead of feeling fulfilled and blessed and making eternal difference, you really just got ticked at everybody? You got ticked in how they did it. You got ticked at how everybody responded. You got angry. So what happens is you walk away saying, I'm never doing that again. What do you do? You go right back into your cave like Elijah. Of course. I tell you this. If you walk away from this message and you say, I want my life to be different. I'm starting tomorrow, going to get up and minister to all those non-believers and believers. It's going to go awful for you. It is. It, it, it's going to go awful to the point where the enemy says, are you discouraged enough now to quit? Because once you quit, I can quit worrying about you. Once you just go back into your pity party cave, I can just quit worrying about you. 
And that's what we do as Christians. I don't know how many times I've heard believers, I've gone up to them and said, Hey, do you ever prayerfully consider getting involved? Oh, at my last church, I got involved and it did not go good. I'd rather just come here and sit. I'm glad you're here. And I always tell people, it's not that we want you to serve because you're fresh meat. We want you to serve because it's part of your growth in your own personal walk with Christ. That's between you and the Lord. We want you to do that. Well, I've had people where they say, I got this non-believer at work. And I say, well, hey, why don't you witness to him? Oh, I witnessed to a guy at work a couple years ago. It did not go well. And I just told myself, I'm just going to go to work, do my time, do my hours. And I'm just coming home. Then you're not understanding what ministry is. Why? Because you're going to get angry. I tell you, and I don't mean this the way it sounds. I have this love-hate relationship sometimes out here at church. I love this place. But then there's times where I see people making choices they shouldn't, and it leads to such a spiritual frustration. But I just read, actually just read in devotions yesterday, where Paul was listing everything that he struggles with. And he went through his whole list of all the times he's been beat nearly to death and shipwrecked and everything. And he finishes it up with saying the greatest concern he has is his concern for the body of Christ. That's his biggest struggle. It's not the physical, it's the spiritual. And what happens is sometimes as a pastor, I want to harden my heart to the point of where I can just say, well, fine, I just don't care. That's their choice. I can't do it. Because you care. If you can get to that point where you just harden your heart and you say, fine, I don't care anymore, then you're missing the heart of Jesus. Because the heart of Jesus says, I care enough to let my heart get broken by people. I care enough to get involved in someone's life and find out later on that they may just spit at me and hate me. Boy, that's difficult. It really is. I tell you, out here sometimes as a pastor, one month someone comes up to me and says, this is the greatest place in the world. Guess what happens the next month? In their opinion, we screw something up, and all of a sudden we're the biggest group of heathens they've ever seen. That's the up and down of it. And I tell you, I sometimes have this Elisha moment, verse 19. The man of God was angry. Now that word angry, literally in the Hebrew, means displeased, displeasure. I think you good old King James is out there. It says he was wroth or something like that. He was frustrated. And spiritually you get frustrated. Parents, you get spiritually frustrated with your kids. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. You get spiritually frustrated with them. You want to be done. Look at the passage here, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, sometimes I want to lay the hammer down. Sometimes I want to bring back Old Testament stoning. God says no. Gentleness. Love. Joash kind of got it, kind of didn't got it. get it. That frustrated Elisha. He got angry. He got frustrated. Let's move on here. What happened? Verse 20. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And then a raiding band from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That's one of the strangest verses in the entire Bible. And it's kind of just like in there. Elisha dies, so Elisha's dead. Next spring, they're burying another man, obviously in the same tomb as Elisha. There's this group coming from Moab that wants to attack them, so they basically say, fine, drop the body and run. They drop the body, the body touches Elisha's bones, and that guy comes back to life. Now, that's one of those passages, I think, that we read it, we hear it, and we say, oh, a neat story. 
Well, it doesn't really matter if it really happened or not. It's just kind of a neat little story. Because James is going to make some spiritual point about this, and that's what really matters. Yeah, I will. But there's also no reason to believe that this didn't happen. Now, I can't make you believe that or not. It's the same thing with Jonah and the big fish. You either believe that he really got swallowed by the big fish. It's the same thing with Lazarus. You either really believe that he died and rose again a few days later. Same thing with creation. You either read Genesis 1-1 and really believe that the Lord created something out of nothing, or you try to justify it, you try to rationalize it. This story right here, when this man touched the bones of Elijah, he came back to life. Now, what's the spiritual application? I think the spiritual application is your ministry goes on after you die. I think that's really what it comes down to, is that your life, when you physically die, your ministry does not end. Uh, there, there, are, there are people that have been very instrumental in my Christian walk with the Lord, and they have been dead 5, 10, 15 years. I still quote them. I still think about what they've said. Little comments to me a decade ago still impact me today. Parents, if you're sitting here today and you are so spiritually frustrated, worked up, tired, defeated, angry, sad, because your child's not walking with the Lord, do you realize you may not see your child walking with the Lord? But maybe at your funeral, your bones may affect them. See, that's the thing. Too often we affect ministry in the here and now. I need to see them get saved now. Well, it may take your death for them to come to know Christ. Trust that the Lord works. Elisha, even in death, people were still coming to life. I hope that I have annoyed you guys so much that when I die, you still say, well, I still remember James saying you've got to have an eternal perspective. I hope you do. I hope I annoy you to the point. Because that is leaving behind a legacy. Right now, you may be saying, fine, no one listens to me. No one pays any attention to what I'm saying. I'm just going to be done. Right then, you're going back into the cave like Elijah. It does not matter right now. How many people are listening to you or paying attention to you? What matters is the footprint your ministry leaves as you move on. When I first took over as a pastor, I should say when I first started teaching um, out here at church, that's been, oh boy, was back in 97. After every message I got done, I would go up to somebody. If my wife was here or somebody else, and I would say, how did it go? Did anything good come out? Did you get anything out of it? And I was desperate to make sure that it came across. After a few years of teaching, now my only thing is, did I say anything that was biblically wrong? It's not because I trust my words. I trust how God works. You may come in here tonight, and I may look across you guys Wednesday night, or I may look across on Sunday, and I'll see people falling asleep. I'll see people not paying attention. I'll walk away from a message thinking, that was the worst message in the world. No one got anything out of it. But you know what? It's not about the now. It's about the footprint that God's word leaves later on. Elisha was dead. He was in heaven, rejoicing. His footprint, literally his bones, brought someone back to life. Your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your family, you name it, that right now is not listening to a word you say. You don't know what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years down the road. You will leave a footprint that could affect their lives and trust the Lord in that. Don't hide in the cave. Get out. Go serve. Go minister. Be effective. Listen to the Lord. Put all these points in together real quick. I'm going to die. Since I know I'm going to die, I want to take the advantage of every moment I have now for the Lord. Number two, it makes me get involved. And as I get involved, number three, I need to learn to listen more. Lord, what is it that you want me to do? 
And as I go out there and serve the Lord, point number four, I'm going to get upset. I'm going to get spiritually frustrated with things. But I still keep serving because why, point number five, I realize I'm leaving a spiritual footprint that I hope will affect people later on through the Holy Spirit. Elisha's death is a wonderful blessing of life. And we can learn a lot from that. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything we said here tonight before we go ahead and close up in prayer? Okay. No one has anything. Let's go ahead and close with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray for this. I pray that all of us here tonight would just realize, just realize as we serve you, that you're working behind the scenes and things that we don't even realize. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you for it not being based on us. That I and we don't have to carry this burden. It's you. It's you moving and working even when we don't see it. If someone tonight is discouraged, I pray that you would uplift them. If someone tonight is just feeling like no one listens, I pray that you would uplift them. If someone tonight is ready to give up, I pray that you would uplift them, Lord. Just to trust that you're moving and working even when we don't see it. We lift this up in your name. Amen. If you don't mind sticking around with us to help split the chairs here tonight for the wedding this weekend, we would appreciate it. You guys have a good weekend. God bless.